Hello and welcome to yet another episode of Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin here with my Halloween loving, finishing, candy uh, pirating, Teos Abadia. Hey, Teos, how you doing? Hey, Sean, uh, I am uh, filled with candy because my wife was, well, usually we make popcorn balls. They're delicious. We didn't have the time. So mm -hmm. we just bought Reese's Pieces peanut butter cups because when only one kid showed up, that was a win. Solid win. Uh-huh. That's <laughs> that that's a win. Yeah, we we for, had our first Halloween in our new home. Oh yeah. Which is not in in a shall you say residential area, but so we weren't sure. My wife is a teacher, so she buys candy for her students and brings home the rest for us to give out. So we weren't sure we, what we were going to get, and we got no one. Yeah. So we do, in fact, have a lot of candy that I have locked away in a drawer somewhere. So you actually have to go through a process to get to it, um, which is, I think, important for those of us who should not be eating too much candy. <laughs> yeah, which is everybody, but yeah. Yeah. However, if I did have Reese's uh, peanut butter cups, I would not have locked them away and I would probably be mm -hmm. on a sugar high right now. And in fact, just knowing that you have them at your house, <laughs> I am like looking up how much it costs to fly yeah. there. Come on over. We got if I Reese's break into your house. Cups. They're an All official right. sponsor now of the show. So that's good. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure they are. If not, they should be. Mm. Reese's, give us a call. Speaking of giving us a call, there are several people who have given us a call via Twitter and 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 uh, Patreon and YouTube and so on, and uh, we are going to take their missives right now. We are going to start with James W., who wrote in to us via our Patreon Discord. James says, "To what extent is this hobby? To what extent is this a hobby that spans the ages? For example." Is it possible for different age groups to enjoy being at the same table? Do the, quote, youngsters of today have different expectations of what a game night looks like? Do they expect their 10-page backstory to be shoehorned into the main plot, in effect almost writing their character arc before they even start the module? That last bit may have been a bit of a leading question vibe to it. <laughs> uh, so the answer for me is I have played with many different people of many different ages Many different experience levels, many different personalities, many different expectations, all at the same table. This has been done through one-shots. It's been done as part of organized play campaigns. It's even been done as a part of home campaigns. Right now, the ages of my players in my home group range from you know early 20s to close to 60. And I don't think I've ever run into a real stereotype behavior along the lines of ages. In fact, that this 10-page backstory thing, which James seems to attribute to younger players, I have found that those sorts of people, um, nothing wrong with, with that uh, mm -hmm. way to think about games. If you want to bring your 10-page backstory, great. They have generally been older players who have played for a long time. Uh, so right there, that breaks with the what must be James's experience or thoughts on it based on what my experience is. Uh, what do you think, Teos? Yeah, I tend to agree. I, I, I see it kind of 
all over the place. Um, and I don't know that that I see, you know, like like this question could it could be that the answer would be something like, oh, you know, younger kids want story rich immersion or, you know, uh, nothing but combat or something. But but I don't really necessarily find that. I mean, there is a maturity issue when kids are, say, in middle school there, you know, a lot of people talk about how younger kids will want to murder everything. And there is certainly a little bit of that in my experience, having run a number of like middle schoolish kind of age that they, they will want to try out in a fantasy world. Can I really do whatever I want and press those limits a bit? But outside of that, the play can be as rich as someone who is far older. And I don't know that I see any particular differences where I, where I do see a total thing that like I just you can peg it is a family of many ages that games together tends to be an absolute riot at conventions I've been to. And I've seen this many times where they will hurt one another, put each other in peril, undo what the other person is trying to do. It's absurd to sit at one of those tables and see what family members will do to each other when you might expect like a loving, you know, well-oiled machine or something. No, it is just like, how can we mess with our, each other? And that's hilarious. Yeah, it's 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 funny that you talk about the maturity level because I have run uh, encounter seasons back with fourth mm -hmm. edition yeah. where it was all kids like age 14 and younger. And they a couple of them did have that push the envelope, try to do anything, but they were instantly or pretty quickly talked down by more quote mature people at the table even though those people are probably 12 to 14 <laughs> saying no that's not how we do this and then i would run a season for older folks and you would see that same parallel right you would see some people who want to go off and do wild things and then there's other players at the table who are like do you know what this is do you know what D D is it's working together <laughs> to to do a goal so that that sort of parallel the ages were different, but the roles at the yeah. table and the personalities at the table uh, sort of fell into place anyway, regardless of age. So uh, I think, you know, to answer that question, this is a hobby that spans the ages, totally spans yeah. the ages. Uh, and all what it takes is communication um, to let people know what's expected of the game that particular adventure, the other people at the table and empathy for what people like, what people want and trying to accommodate reasonable requests from people, regardless of age or play style or personality uh, and an appreciation of everyone's time and ability to add to the game and the story. Yeah. That's absolutely. the most important thing I would say. Absolutely. Um, also coming to us via Patreon Discord is Ethan, who says, if the core of the game is reducing hit points, and sometimes healing hit points, why not have more mechanics that reduce hit points? We have combat, we have traps, we have environmental effects to a lesser extent. Why not make more exploration-related uh, exploration related things reduce hit points? Because exhaustion is mechanically excessive. <laughs> uh, Ethan, we can. We can totally do that. What do we need to do that, though? We need a buy-in from the players to the fact that hit points might mean something different than just health and losing stuff in combat. 
we need a a, a player buy-in to say that risk and death and bad things can happen outside of combat. Then if we get that buy-in, we as designers can manipulate hit points, the loss and the gain of hit points outside of just taking them away. Uh, so it's not that we can't do it. It's that you need to find a way to do it that gets buy-in from the players and that makes sense in the ongoing narrative as well as in the mechanics of the game. And Sean, maybe a parallel to that is if you think about saving throws, right? Saving throws have at times been ability-based. Defenses have sometimes been mm -hmm. ability-based, right? Where you were attacking someone's con, mm -hmm. right? Fourth edition did that. Um, you've had saving throws be things like wads, wands, staves, and rods, or death, right? Like almost categories. And so there have been a number of times when we've all fully bought into slightly different ideas of what it is that we're doing to threaten each other. And you, and you probably could use hit points in a number of ways. When I look at this question, I think there's sort of two answers that I think of. One is, you know, mechanically that you can do this. And yes, mechanically, the core of the game as you've often said, Sean, is around hit point loss. And, and, and everything kind of circles around that and feeds off of that core truth. And so we can do a lot with, with it mechanically, but also um, mm -hmm. the core of the game is not the entirety of the game. It's just a really important sure. core. And so mm -hmm. we don't do everything off of hit points because we want the game to be more than its core. Right. And, and so you can have both that it is true that this is super critical, important and a useful lens to look at the game through. And there's more to the game like role playing. And so we don't need to role play and then add, subtract hit points based on our role play, because that's not what the game's trying to do, even if the core is very important. And if you did want to, you could do things like. Like this, you're coming back from a dungeon and you go through a toxic bog mm -hmm. you make a series of exploration type of checks survival nature whatever succeeding or failing where the game breaks down is if you take away hit points does it really matter in the long run because you can heal them back so quickly what you could do then is have a system where depending on the nature of the infestation of the poisoning you can't get back hit points until you blank, until you get the antidote, until you rest for two weeks, until you do these things. While Or while you are poisoned in this way, you have, uh, not resistance, what's the opposite? Vulnerability to all damage, period. So that doesn't take away hit points but it still makes the hit points the core of the game as that it's not well it is meant to be it's there because it's meant to be there uh the designers keep keeping keep making that a an integral part of the system because that's what the system tends to be about so do that okay now it's not you're taking away hit points but you are making it easier to have hit points taken away mm. or harder to get hit points back that reinforces then the system of exploration with its hit point 
uh, negotiation with its hit point meter changing without just, okay, you lose 10 hit points. Oh, I cast a spell. I gained 10 hit points. You and can... literally, you could do the same thing with role play. I was going to just say that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, could, I was imagining as you're saying that, that you could do something where you'd, if, if hit points are resilient, right? If they're not actually scar tissue and, and whatever, always, then if it's resilience, well, then failing to convince the queen of your the importance of your quest could easily mean that now you can't regain hit points easily because you're not in a resilient state, right? So you could do that same kind of approach. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you could make now again, it's the buy in from the players that that is the most important thing, because we have seen over time, people will grumble, but in the end, accept failing one check, a saving throw could kill them, could kill their character, right? The, the save or die thing. People maybe don't like it, but they accept it as part of the game when it happens. Will they accept, oh, you failed a persuasion check and therefore you are killed by the town guard? They're less likely <laughs> to accept that because the game separates that in some way. So in order to make it feel part of the whole rather than its own separate and less uh, important thing, you need to find a way to integrate all of that, which you could then do um with these systems that we talk about or develop your own system uh, that that does similar things. But it would have to be play tested. It would have to be right made to make sure it feels right in all of those uh, elements of game design. OK, Teos, you're going to take this one first. Ready? All right. So Magus, Magus asks one to two hour sessions versus three hour to five hour sessions versus eight plus hour sessions. Should the DM's approach differ and how? And what this made immediately made me think of is at PAX West earlier this year, we ran 30-minute demos of D&D. We ran hour-long demos of D&D. We ran two-hour adventures, and we ran four-hour adventures. And one thing that was really interesting to see is how exhausted the 30-minute especially, but also one-hour DMs were. Because if you think about it, when you're DMing in public, you've got to kind of like establish the table, you know, introduce yourselves, get everybody warmed up, get everybody to be social with each other, present the situation. And that actually takes a lot of energy when you really think about it to get that all going. Well, in a 30 minute demo, you're going to have like an encounter and then end. And then you got to repeat that again and do all of that build up and that energy. Right. And I think that that is a lens through which I would look at this question that, that the longer it is, the more that you can just sort of roll with it and work with what's there versus shorter sessions, that buildup and getting the players going and focused uh, occupies a greater percentage of the time. And the need to make, and then the second part of it, I'd say, is that in trying to establish what a session is, there's often a sort of cadence that stretches across that time period. And so if it's a shorter piece, you kind of really need to hit those points within that session. So like, you know, you probably don't want it to be all combat. That's harder to establish in a shorter time period than in a longer one, right? What do you think? Yeah. Yeah. I I think what you said is true. It's it's about pacing and it's about story beats. Whether it's a 30-minute session or a 12-hour session, you want to have a good pace for the time 
and a good hit on story beats for that time. You still want interesting choices. You still want interesting and diverse encounter types, even if it's an hour long uh, adventure. You still want fun situations and interesting choices. But the stakes and how quickly things move forward need to be altered if you're doing it for one hour as opposed to eight or 12 hours. Uh, I've run all of these different kinds of things. And like Teo said, running eight one-hour adventures is like sprinting a marathon. Whereas running one eight-hour adventure is like running a marathon, but you're doing it at a more leisurely pace. Because in that one hour scenario, you 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 boom, boom, boom. You need to get it done. You need to get all the points in. You're just go, 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 yeah. go. For that eight hour adventure, you can sit back and you might take an hour to even introduce the goal of the characters. You might take your time in running the thing because you don't you can't sustain that pace that you would have in a one hour adventure over eight hours. And the players can't. Yeah. Uh, so that that's the difference. It's it's a matter of pacing and it's a matter of hitting the beats, the right beats at the right time to keep players engaged yet focused in the in the right way uh, over the time period you have. And I think the shorter it is, the more that the focus you can't go long, even when it's fun, because you must get to an ending and you have very little time for that. And so. So you have to ride the waves and, and trim a little more. It's almost like you're on the um, in a production team and you've got to trim those scenes and keep people moving or skip things entirely. Yep. But then then that's probably a big gap. If you think of the, the number of scenes you have in a one hour, two hour experience, you cut one like that's a big could be a really big part of the story and hard to do. You're running four hours. If something's going really well, you can just go for a long time with that. And you still have enough scenes that you're going to hit on that you could skip two or three of them and it may not matter. Right. And so, so you have a lot more latitude in the longer adventures to go with the ebb and flow and, and make judgment calls and so on that are that are at, at a leisurely way and, and, and a fun way. But when you're running a short demo, you know, you can't tell me fit, you, you just think about an, a one hour demo. You know, you can't have that player that talks about their character for five minutes. So you've got to figure out how to cut them off without offending them. <laughs> <laughs> which right. is a skill right. or teach them that it's against their best interest to take that time if they want to get it done and all of this we're talking about we're considering the one hour session or the eight hour session to be a one shot thing mm -hmm. if if you're running a long uh campaign one hour at a time you may have the leisure of well we're just going to role play for this hour yeah. because that's what the adventure calls for. And everyone knows that the next session, maybe I'll combat so we can play one off against the other. But if you're running a one hour session where you need to do a complete adventure, that's when we're talking yeah. about this sort of rapid fire. And, and if um, it is truly intense, situation. if it is an ongoing campaign, what I would say to the one hour DM is make it episodic, right? Make it the way a TV show would work where you, you know, you've got a big life. There's lots of things going on, but this is the mission, right? This is, we are zooming in on that part and we're cutting off the rest, right? Where as you're going into the dungeon, this episode that you heard about last time, right? Like just, you're not going to, because 
if you just spend so much of the session kind of figuring things out and stuff, and that's not very fun and very engaging, you know, it's going to, it's going to drop off an in interest. So you probably want to really tailor those scenes to be the, the highlights of what's going on in these characters' lives. If you never, you know, if you only run longer games, like four hour games or longer, uh, go back and look at the D and D encounters mm -hmm. adventures yeah. and see how they divide things up to be run in an hour to 90 minutes to maybe two hours at the most and how they try to get all the good content of an adventure into that shorter span, how they how they handle it. Um, you get some really good ideas and some good tips on sort of adventure design and, and game flow in those situations. And it's surprising because some of those sessions do a trek across the desert and some of them are make it through these two rooms, but yet fill the hour. And yeah, I, yeah. you're right that there is real skill that went on into that. All right, Tails, the last uh, question today coming to us from Graham Ward via our Patreon. Does the buck stop with the DM or the designer? Who works for whom, so to speak? And then James W. added to, uh, to that. Another question for the podcast might be, are we being too critical of 5e adventures? Are we looking at these too much from a creative creator standpoint, when in reality, we should have two questions. How useful is it for a new DM? How useful is this for an experienced DM? Do we need a color-coded system to indicate which type of DM this adventure is suited for? What do you think? We could do a whole show on these layered questions. I love it. Um, you know, mm -hmm. who the buck stops with? I mean, yes, it. Um, the designer is serving the DM in a couple of ways. One is making it a pleasure to read this product because you may never run it uh, or a pleasure to use as a tool so that the DM can serve the players. Does that make sense, Sean? Absolutely. The, that, that's the strange beauty and madness of this, of this thing we do is that as a creator, whether you're creating rules or adventures, you are serving one audience member is the DM. Mm. But there are thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of DMs out there. So the buck does stop with the DM for the players because the DM, it's the DM's job to do that for the players. Now, for the DM, the buck stops with the people designing the material they're using. Yeah. So, but but the designer doesn't work for a DM. The mm. designer works for all DMs everywhere using this content. Great point. So, as a designer, you can't please everyone. If you try to please everyone, you will inevitably end up pleasing no one. Yeah. So, as a designer, what you do is you set a goal. Yep, you set a goal and you say, all right, this is what I'm trying to do with this content. State it up front. I want this adventure to do the following thing. I want this subsystem of rules to do the following things. Now, here is how I'm going to do that. Here, then you give the material and then you say, here's what I did. How do I, how did I do? And then the game master, the, the players or whoever buys your, your stuff or uses it can say, okay, cool. That was the goal. 
I'm down with that goal. Let's see how they did. Okay, they did fine. Or nope, they, they fell short. Or maybe it's, okay, this is the goal. I'm not interested in that goal. So I'm going to read it, but I'm not going to worry too much about using it. Then on the other side, as a creator who's trying to make a living, perhaps making stuff, you don't want to limit your market, right? I do not want a color code system saying if yes. it's purple, it means it's for new DMs who like role playing. If it's green, it's for ex uh, experienced DMs who like role playing because it's hard enough to sell your content to the market that's there Let's see. by limiting your market even more you're setting yourself up for failure and what's the color coding the color coding is red intro blue intermediate yeah black then like a silver yeah. <laughs> i'm looking over at my shelf because we did that with basic right yeah. we tried to sort of do yeah. that and it was super confusing for a lot of people especially in the non-internet era to figure out why an adventure was for immortals and masters and basic and intermediates. And, and yeah, you don't want to limit your audience. I think also great content should work for like, like, as you're saying, when you're creating something, it's going to have an appeal to a certain type of demographic. And I don't really feel like the demographic should ever be new or experienced. So like, if you look at the mm -hmm. starter sets, the best part of those starter sets for a new player should still be really fun for an experienced player to run or experienced DM. Experienced DMs come back into the game all the time, right? They may have been experienced under a different edition or whatever, and, or they may just simply want a great adventure to run. And, and the way that so many DMs have run that first starter set is indicative of that, right? Like of how many people, regardless of experience level, want to run it, right? And, and so I don't know that new levels of experience of a dm i don't think that's ever been a really good breakdown i don't think it was good in the rpga or organized play forums i don't think it's good mm -hmm. as a sales thing instead i think you're going to have some things that are like you know if, if i think of like uh wild beyond the witch light that is mm -hmm. going to appeal to certain people and not to others as a theme but it still should mm -hmm. be great to run for those or to whom it, it, it appeals right mm-hmm Right. And even if it doesn't appeal to you directly, it should be mineable for mm -hmm. interesting content, for interesting encounters, for interesting ideas. Um, so I agree with Teos completely in, in, in that sense. I've written a few things now recently for new players. And while I try to take the time to explain things and to make encounters that would not be difficult to run for new players i also want experienced dms and players to to use it and enjoy it yeah. for for what it is the the story that might unfold from it uh right some interesting little npcs or choices or or things like that or even yeah, i'm not gonna go that, that that's going yeah. too far down a rabbit hole i can't well, talk about but one yeah. thing that i will say you know which is like who's accountable to whom and when when i write for organized play i will often take mm -hmm. liberties in my design that i would not if i were writing for published like dungeons and dragons because mm -hmm. i know that a lot of dms that run organized play are expert dms and are writers and designers who want to pick up new tricks and think through new things. And, and I always felt this way when I run organized play, 
I love it when I see something I haven't seen before or, or something that maybe creates, oh, like, yeah, you can do this in the game. And I, so I will design mm -hmm. things that are new and different, even though they will fail at some tables. I mean, everything fails at some number of tables, but I will accept mm -hmm. a higher failure rate because I think at those tables at which it succeeds, it's going to create really good experiences mm -hmm. and it's going to open some minds to possibilities, right? What if the dungeon rotates in space above you? What if the monsters are moving across the dungeon, right? Those kinds of things. And some of those things are things that other people have played with. Like Will Doyle came up with that second concept the first time that I really saw that and thought about it. And then I wanted to do my version of it, right? And so those kinds of things yeah. sometimes are worth doing, even though you know that they will not always work because it's safer in an organized play context than publishing it out there. As I say, starter said, I wouldn't do that. Yep. Yep. So uh, there you go. Thank you, everyone, for your questions. And again, you can always reach out to us via any of the social media platforms that we're on, our, our Discord if you're a patron, YouTube, and so on. Let us get now into our news and commentary section, starting with streaming D&D &D programming. That's right. Dungeons & Dragons Adventures, the streaming channel. We mentioned this when it was first announced, and now it looks like it is right around the corner. Um, they announced a, a fast, F-A-S-T, free ad-supported uh, programming channel that will launch on November 8th, which is two days from when we record, and it will already be started once you all are hearing this. If you get something like Amazon Freebie or Plex, there will be content for you to watch supported as always and on those places by ads what are the first three shows we're going to get teos and counterparty heroes feast and what was the one other one faster um, purple worm faster kill, purple kill. worm kill kill so tell us about these uh and counterparty is a live play run by brian david judkins there's i guess 22 episodes that they're going to release the faster purple worm kill kill is the Beetle and Grimm's crew. Have, they've run this a couple times at convention events, so you can find the videos out there now and see what they look like. Um, those are basically you're going to fight some absolute horrible creature, purple worm or worse, and you're going to die. And it's just a question of how. And often they'll have special guests on there that you kind of enjoy seeing how they handle things. Uh, Heroes Feast is the cooking show using the Heroes Feast cookbook, which is probably the most successful third-party licensed product out there for D&D. &D. Uh, so they have special guests on to cook things and do zany things. All of these have previews um, that you can see. And in fact, we link in our show notes to RPGbot.net. Uh, we got to meet the folks at uh, GameCon, really nice team. Uh, they've got an excellent, excellent article on this, linking to all the previews and all that. So check it out. Um, and then there's older material, there Sean, like my beloved D&D &D cartoon from the 80s as well as streaming stuff and all that. Yeah, yeah, you're asking for the D&D cartoon. Well, now you will likely be able to, to see it. So uh, if, if any of you out there are watching these shows by the time this show drops, let us know what you think. Let us know yeah. if it's entertaining, uh, if, it, if it scratches your D&D &D itch in any way, and, uh, and let us know. We next get an interview with D&D designer Mackenzie DeArmas on autism, hysteria, and the book of many things. 
McKenzie was interviewed by Alyssa Vischer, looking at how the first autistic D&D NPC came to be. The design of this went backwards. It started with the deck of many things, and there's only one named NPC associated with the deck, which is, I can't pronounce this, Your Yale? Your Yale? Yes. And so Mackenzie took that and then designed backwards. Uh, what did you think of this interview, Taz? It's a great interview. It's really interesting. I mean, I love the personal touch because all of us have personal touches in our work at times, right? And and things can resonate with us for a lot of different reasons. And in this case, you know, Mackenzie is artistic. Autistic. Uh, Alyssa, who's interviewing, is also autistic. So they bring in a lot of depth and knowledge into this article looking at, at how this is. And they talk very frankly about how the team got behind this idea of, of who the Medusa is and what it would mean to have a, a paladin champion for this Medusa. And that led to the, the thought of, well, you know, if it's an autistic woman, maybe she doesn't want to actually meet her gaze to begin with. And, you know, and, and sort of is shunned. She is shunned, the paladin, for not making eye contact. And when she meets, when Osteria meets Uriali, uh, they get along really well and have a lot of common for being sort of shunned by others for who they are. And and it's it's a really nice read. This whole article is excellent look at both for a window into the design process of you, how you create a story and how you create a story, particularly when you hit an issue that you have to trade carefully covering, right? You don't want to, both for, for personal reasons and just of the world we live in, you don't want to have this be a shallow thing that you're doing or to be something that people will use against people who are autistic, right? I, I really like the frankness with which they look at this issue. Um, and in the end of the story, Asteria takes on Istis, god of fate, and sort of looks back upon her life and, and the Medusa's life and says, you know, no, god of fate, it isn't just preordained. I should have a say in my destiny. And this leads to the creation of the deck of many things, which is cool. It is really cool. We get next a new product from Beetle and Grimm's and Keith Ammon, friend and backer of the show. They are releasing 5e encounter cards. So Beetle and Grimm will release four sets of encounter cards on November 15th. Each card has the artwork of a monster on the front and then DM details on the back. Those cards will include the tactical tips taken from Keith's monsters. The monsters know what they're doing as well as preferred attacks and other information. This is really cool. Really, really cool. cool. Two sets are coming out. One is CR 0 to 6. The other is CR 7 and higher. They're $30 each. Um, and I, I think it's great. Uh, hats off to Beetle and Grimms for recognizing what King Keith brings, what his knowledge brings to a product like this. And to incorporate that as part of it is, is really smart for these uh, monster and encounter cards. Um, there's a link here where you can see what ICV2 covers about it. And in other news, Beetle and Grimm is launching a Kickstarter uh, on the 6th. It'll be out by the time you hear this for Rings of Chaos, a competitive card and board game, which I thought was interesting because you see Beetle and Grimm sort of diversifying and trying different things, including their own game, right? So we'll see. <laughs> well, We'll definitely keep an eye on that. And that leads us seamlessly into creator and crowdfunding news. The first of which is a new DMs Guild supplement 
from Wizards of the Coast called Chains of Asmo Asmodeus. So who did this? Well, James Olin did. Uh, James is known for being the lead designer on video games like Baldur's Gate 1 and 2, Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic, Dragon Age Origins, and others. So he you know, has that background as well as a background in D&D. And it's said he was recruited to Bioware based on his D&D skills. <laughs> so when uh, Archetype Entertainment formed as a video game production company as part of Wizards of the Coast, uh, James joined that team and released Heroes of Baldur's Gate as an adventure on the DMs Guild, followed by Minx Gambu's journey, uh, journey Journal of Villainy. And, of course, they sold very well, but they sold as a Wizards of the Coast product because I believe at Wizards there's this thing that you can't make money off of the DMs Guild right. while you're a full-time employee of the company. So we got those two, and now we get Chains of Asmodeus, which is the number one bestseller on the DMs Guild, not surprisingly. Uh, and why is it such a great hit, Teos? I mean, like the previous books, you kind of have to wonder, how did this even happen? It's entirely possible the answer is that James Olin is just prolific. Like, this almost feels like a home campaign. Like, he ran Baldur's Gate, Descended to Avernus, and then fleshed out the entire experience and then just started to write it up. But also, because maybe mm -hmm. being in the video game industry, he's connected to artists in some way, because there is an unbelievable amount of art in this product. And a lot of it is computer generated, like it looks like it's sort of out of a video game. Um, and then some of it is is kind of typical art like you'd find in a book. But there is a ton of it. And you, you just kind of wonder, like, you know, no, no independent creator could just afford doing this. So I'm very curious. I mean, proceeds mm -hmm. go to Extra Life. So I don't know how much it has to make before it reaches that point or. But it is 286 pages focused on the nine hells. And if you're you're one of those folks out there going like, I wish Wizards of the Coast would have given me a source book on the nine hells. Well, this is the best you're going to get out of it other than going to third edition source books where they did that already. <laughs> you get more than 50 yeah. high CR monsters. If stat blacks for Asmodeus, Lord of the Nine, all major arch, arch devils, you have 20 plus infernal magic items, a corruption mechanic, Every layer of the Nine Hells is detailed with illustrated maps. Now, the maps may be a little basic because of how the Hells work, but still you get maps for them. Uh, and each of these layers has really decent levels of detail, right? Because the adventure takes you there. And so you get to see what you should do in each of these places. And, and you have, uh, you know, I'd say a session or two worth of content for each layer at least. Uh, the adventure spans levels 11 to 20, and it's all for $30. <laughs> so yeah, I, I was yeah. impressed. There's some neat details, like the beginning, you you um, you choose a soul that your character is here to save, which could also be your own. Um, you also, as a group, choose a group patron, such as the Hellriders of Elturel, and then this kind of colors things later as you go through it. Uh, the corruption mechanic is because there are often hard choices or opportunities for you to go wrong, including not of your own volition. There's a fair bit of like, you know, there is a powerful demon that radiates an aura of making you want to do excessive revelry or things like that. 
Um, materials clean. It doesn't go into details when things like that happen, but but you know, it, it's the hells. Um, and there's some big bold things here, Sean. Uh, I did buy it. I did look because I was curious. So I spent you know backup money that I had to look at it. And um, there's you know giant flying warships, swarms of giant insects chasing you into a hag's hut with a giant disembodied hag arm outside. An eye market run by a beholder and mind flare where they replace your eyes with magic items, you know, all sorts of wild stuff like that. Um, it is so it's big and bold, and uh, I think a lot of people will like it. I will say that if this were a wizard's project, wizards would probably want to do work to it, right? To sand down edges, mm -hmm. create a fine tune the experience. But for a guild product, it's it's excellent, it's, it's really good. There you go. It's big and bold and available for you right now on the DMs Guild. Also available available to you right now for free is a new blog series from our friend and the super talented Greg Marks on Planar Adventures. He's doing this for Cobalt Press's blog, and it is perfect if you are in the Planescape mood or a similar themed uh, campaign. What do these blogs cover? Well, the first one covers creating adventures, ideas on themes, locations, NPCs, and more. Um, contains an example of rolling uh, on tables to create your adventure. Blog two is Magic of the Planes, several spells reflecting or working off of the planes. You can even summon a mechanical skull knowledgeable in planar lore. The third blog is two new subclasses, the Barbarian Path of the Great Test, and the cleric philosophist. So if you are into the planes right now for whatever reason, uh, you can get Greg's wonderful expertise at your fingertips uh, in this blog from Cobalt Press. Morris at uh, EN World has ranked the top crowdfunders for tabletop role-playing games. Uh, Teos, you covered this. What what do you got for us? Yeah, you know, previously Morris has said, "Hey, here are the um, number like like the the top campaigns, right? So individual Kickstarter that raised a lot of money, uh, and and often he looks at sort of the million dollar club of campaigns that have run more than one. But this was a question of looking at well, if you add up everything a creator or company has released." you know, how many go above 2 million? And, and the answer is there are 22 that have more than 2 million in combined sales. And he ranked them. So the top it goes to Monty Cook Games, which I think a lot of us, if we had to guess, you know, you might pick Monty Cook to be in the top two. Um, they just mm -hmm. relaunched their Invisible Sun RPG. I have a copy. It's cool. It's awesome. Um, and they have 22 Kickstarters, four backer kit campaigns, totaling 13.2 million. Good on them. Mm -hmm. um, Free League is not far behind that uh, with, I think, even more releases, but a slightly lower number. Then you have Magpie Games. And some of these companies like Magpie, they've had, you know, like a particularly successful Kickstarter and others have had many small ones. So you can see diversity in there as you look at that. Uh, Hit Point Press, uh, Richard Thomas of Onyx Path Publishing, Cobalt Press, Matt Colville, Exalted Funeral, Shane Hensley with Pinnacle Entertainment Group and Savage Worlds. Goodman Games, and then Ghostfire Gaming. So, and then, you know, another 11 or so after that. Um, it's, a, it's a neat list yeah. to look at and contemplate for what this means to the industry, because, I mean, Kickstarter didn't exist not that long ago. 
And this is just, I mean, what a difference this makes. And, and to think of a number of companies that are, obviously you don't keep all this money, but you are moving it through the system and bolstering the economy of, of the hobby and helping creators rise with it and, and a lot of good work being done through this. Yeah, I mean, two thoughts. One is I wouldn't, you know, be in the position I'm in if Kickstarter wasn't there to fund these things. So, you know, that like you said, Teos, that's a huge deal. The second is, you know, Ghostfire is on the list. And it's funny because we are on the list three times. Um, we are yeah. on the list for our own things. We are on the list for the partnerships that we have with the Dungeon Dudes uh, and with Eldermancy. So if you add up those three for us, it puts us in like the top five. Wow. Uh, so, yeah, it's and like I said, it's it's great. It's as much as, you know, we can have problems with some of these large companies uh, that have been controversial over the years, Kickstarter being one of them. Um, it's it has created a lot of opportunities for for creators to connect with fans and, and a market and an audience that's super important so yeah and and another part is that these companies are all fairly different you know like like if you look at any one of these mm -hmm. companies they're not all like the same right so like monty cook has a pretty small team they pay each other well they take care of each other with benefits and things like that but but very small very they don't do a lot of freelancing or anything like that and they are very different than how mcdm is uh, and very different than how Ghostfire is. And, and mm -hmm. you know, and then you have some that are just like almost like an individual and, and it can vary so much uh, between these on the list. And so there are a lot of things here. And, and of course, as a creator, I, I ponder, how did these folks even get here? And I don't think a lot of them would even know how. <laughs> like, it really is interesting how yeah. things can happen and lead to success. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we talk about business, the business side of things all the time on the air, off the air, and, you know, not just the RPG business, but business in general about these great successes we see or the great failures that, that uh, unfortunately happen. And there's really no rhyme, nor reason to any of it. The, the downfalls are just as accidental as the successes. And just when you think, you know, what caused a success, uh, the industry gets turned around and you find out you knew nothing. Um, and it's it's amazing and it's terrifying and it's chaotic, <laughs> but it's where we are uh, in our world. There you go. Hey, speaking of chaotic uh, things in our world, Forge of Foes from a quite interesting team of one Tios Abadia, uh, Scott Gray and Mike Shea. That, that rhymes, those last two. Uh, it's available in PDF right now, and you can get it in print soon. If you're a backer, you should ha either have your copy or it should be on its way. I know mine is on my, on, on its way. Uh, if you missed it, you can order online at shop.slyflourish.com. Some parts are placed in the Creative Commons. You can read about that at slyflourish.com. And if you want a quick stat block generator using the rules in the book, guess where that's available? Also at slyflourish.com. Good work, Teos. What? Sorry, I just got distracted because this book is so good. I, I were you talking? You, 
book is so good you you were flipping through it rather than listening to your no, podcast. I, I am so proud of this thing. It is so unbelievable to hold it in my hands. And uh I'm I'm very proud of the work we did as a team. Um and, and I'm still proud of the work we did as a team because it, it it shifts. I now do very little and I get to learn from Mike Shea as he handles all of the printing and distribution challenges and everything else and and you know I will, I could fill a show with all the things that happen as part of a Kickstarter that includes distribution. And, and I don't know that I recommend it for people who aren't like Shay. <laughs> this this is true. Uh, it, it is complicated. It is stressful. It is not for the faint of heart. And uh, you, all three of you in your own ways did, did a great job to bring this to us. And I've been told my uh, book is in the mail. So I'm, I'm uh, waiting for it. Awesome. Well, is hearing from people getting it is is the best. That is so good. So thank you, everyone. But now we are get to our main topic here on Mastering Dungeons this week. We will continue our tour of Planescape, Sigil, and the Outlands. We've talked Sigil. We've talked the factions and the city wards. And now we are going to get to the Outlands portion of Sigil and the Outlands. And, well, the Outlands are out there. They are a plane of concordant opposition, a disc-shaped plane of perfect neutrality at the center of the outer planes. This is the, just as Sigil is sort of a crossroads, so are the Outlands, only in really more ways than one, because each of these uh, gate towns that make up the outlands have a gate to their uh, parallel plane out there in the outer planes. So we will today cover all of chapter three. I We're going to do it. We're going to get through it. We're going to get through it all. Yep. And we're going to talk about what this is, how to use it, why it's great for your game, why it may be confusing for your game, how you can use it as a DM, etc. Sean, I'm going to take a drink. Yeah, I'm going to start with uh, almost a look back a bit because I got my paper copy of this book, which lets me really appreciate that art and the layout. So I've been reading it on D&D Beyond, and it was really interesting to me to see. Like, I might think there was a certain amount of words on a page reading it in D&D Beyond. And then, like, for example, I'd look at the faction section and I'm holding it up for those who can see it. And each faction is on a half a page, one column. And and when I was reading it, it, it like it makes so much more sense. And it's so much easier for me to compare it. And I found myself actually rereading sections of the book that I'd already read because it was so much more enjoyable to do so in print and made so much more sense once you have the layout there. So like the factions, you know, are, are a quarter page. And then if I look at like the wards we talked about, well, each of those mm -hmm. is a page spread uh, or two. Mm -hmm. But it but it, it uh, no, it's, it's more of that. I take that back. But a page spread or two. But with these kinds of the way it's laid out on the page really changed my feeling for it and my enjoyment of this book, which I already liked. But I like it a lot more now that I've held it physically, if that makes sense. And it made me kind of think back. This is kind of my second point, John, and I'll shut up. But um, 
we last time talked about sort of high level what it does in reviewing the wards, and we're going to try to high level talk about the Outlands too. But it's worth saying that there are some really neat locations that we didn't cover last time. Um, you know, the places like the Grease Pit, like all the food places in the Hive that are interesting. And, and so I wouldn't want a listener of our review, either in this session or last episode, to think that there aren't, that you don't get really neat scenes and ideas to bring the mm -hmm. city or the outlands to life you do um it may feel a little thin at some point but i mean i mean the page count is what it is um but but there are some really fun ideas in these and some very cinematic kind of amazing concepts in play here and so we'll, we'll try to talk those uh, when it comes to the outlands in this session but i want to make those points yeah yeah, I, that's a good point. And I think I'm going to wait till the end to say what I was going to say. But it's sort of yours is a precursor to, <laughs> to what I was going to say. So so we'll uh, so we'll, we'll go through this here. So we get a, a brief, well, brief ish section on just the overall outlands themselves. And the first point that is made is, you know, this is the disc-shaped plane at the center of 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 this wheel mm -hmm. and so everything that you would see in sigil you might also see here it's just not a city it's more a crossroads but with separate sections of these gate towns in each yeah. and it says under cosmic realignment Save for the domains of the gods, the realms in the outlands are subject to a planar phenomenon known as the cosmic realignment. What does that mean? When a location embodies the nature of one of the outer planes too closely, that plane absorbs the location and its inhabitants, restoring balance to the outlands and expanding that outer plane. So... Right. The very first thing we learn about this place is if it becomes too much like its home plane, it gets pulled into that and balance is restored. Yeah. But it talks about save for the domains of gods. And we were asking that question before. Is sigil, are the rules that govern sigil the same governing the outlands in that godlike entities, powerful beings of that scale can't come in? And I still don't know the answer, but save for the domains of gods makes me think that it does not uh, hold to those same things. But it talks about the domain of the gods, not the gods themselves. So I'm still confused. I mean, and, and that is a thing that I think Planescape has always struggled with, like the sort of what is this product and what is the experience? Because in, in sort of before this, when you worked off of the old manual of the planes book, or if you start with say the dungeon master's guide in fifth edition, your thought is sort of like, Hey, I'm going to go to the nine hells as we did in Baldur's gate descent and tavernus. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways you could do that is by somehow getting a portal to sigil and from sigil going through the outlands and then going through the gate town that leads you there. That is a way you can do it, but you probably will just go to it directly. So, okay, now we have the city where in the city you could have devils roaming around and a bar that feels like it's in the Nine Hells. 
You could also go to the gate town that leads to that and experience that. And it's hard to know exactly why you would do, like what you would do when and why. It gets a little confusing in my DM brain at least to sort that out. Yeah, that's where I'm coming down on this. It's it's just just talking about the cosmic realignment. Okay, I'm going to jump to the end. Just about this cosmic realignment. I'm a DM. I love this. I love the strangeness of it. I love how it's different than anything else I've ever run. I love the idea of telling a story in this setting, not just like one gate town, but all the gate towns, not just in Sigil, but throughout the breadth of Sigil. But if there's always this cosmic realignment, then what is my point? What is Mm. the ultimate goal of my character if balance is just going to be restored no matter what I do? Mm. And not only that, but what are the goals of the main players in each of these places Mm -hmm. and what are the goals of just the common shopkeeper worker in these places because unless i know that it's hard to put a character put a you know a player character into the setting and sort of answer those questions for them those basic questions of why am i saving people from this place that's attached to hades why am i fighting against the people who are attached to this goody good super lawful place and i just i never quite i can make it up but it always seems like the choice i make ends up going against the actual content of the book at some point Uh, so i'm i'm trying to juggle all of these things to get my game master brain around (laughs) where this everything is leading yeah and and my experience is often colored by what we read when we did um our episodes where we talked about the great modron march which is this classic adventure you know you follow the sort of march of the modrons uh, over a span of several months if not years and you, you go to all, a bunch of different gate towns and sort of experience them, and sometimes the planes themselves. And it, it's hard to make those scenes resonate well. Like a, most of that product, I would say, kind of is more on the side of failing to provide a great feel for the locations rather than managing to do so. Yeah, and, and I, I feel like you could make, like you said before about there are many great locations that we didn't cover within the wards, mm-hmm. and there are going to be great locations that we don't cover in the Outlands. And and they are great, and they would be super fun to run a an encounter in. But to make them just a backdrop rather than a living, breathing part of the story mm-hmm. seems wrong, right? It's It seems like, oh, you need to go to all 16 gate towns and pull one item from each <laughs> in order to make the thing that stops Asmodeus from taking over the multiverse. Great. But every time I go into one of these gate towns, I'm going to feel something, but that something isn't part of the story, right? I go into the, the Hades gate town to get the item and I see all these people who are oppressed and depressed Mm -hmm. and looking for, 
and I want to spend the time there to fix their problems. Yeah. And, and just to go in and out. Right. You well, can't. But and that's, the and setting that's, says you can't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's an interesting part as well here that, that it's sort of when you look at one of these gate towns, does it take too much away from the experience of the plane beyond? Or does it even make you not want to go to the plane beyond? And 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 I found myself feeling that maybe I feel that the gate towns are a little too strong in what they portray. And we'll we'll talk through some examples such that I don't know that I want to go to that place anymore. Um and 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 that maybe it fails to honor the fic the fiction of the ideal that the planes are supposed to serve when this version sort of is less of a promise and more of a delivery and feels kind of like a window into a into the place in a way that I don't want it. So Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I have a similar I have a similar okay. thought. So we'll we'll go yeah. through that as we go through each yeah. gate town. A few other of the more generic parts about the outlands currency and trade uh bartering is the most common way to purchase goods there is something called a lodestar which is a coin stamped with a five-pointed star which is made in trade gate one of the gate towns and it's generally and conveniently worth one gold piece so right uh so if you do need coin you can Probably for one gold piece, buy one gold, uh, one lodestar, and then you can. Uh, and I, I feel like there's like a whole story behind that that I never, yeah, never see. I think the part that I like is is this first part of bartering being most common, and that in general, if you're in this fantastic world, do you really want a gold piece or even this lodestar? No, I mean, yes, currencies and, and exchange mediums of exchange are necessary and and, and efficient. But also, like, it's not about just wealth. And so the, the, I think that's a neat way to look at it. almost like when you're dealing with things in like the Feywild, right? Like, it's probably not about giving a sack of gold to these pixies. It's about entertaining them and dealing with them in those ways. And I think that's kind of the coolest aspect of it that I'd look at. For sure. Um, how do you get over the language barrier? Well, luckily, common is commonly spoken. Although certain areas of concentrated folk may revert to the language that they all know. So if you have a large uh, coterie of demons, then they will probably speak abyssal as well as common. Uh, what are the, what's religion like here? The outlands contain the domains of several gods, such as the hidden tower of Anam, the Allfather, creator of the giants, and the gaseous realm of the beholder god, Zimnid. Uh, devout worshippers, whether alive or dead, gravitate to their gods and carry out their will. This confused me more than anything. It's like, so all the talk we've had about gods before, are, are there actual gods there in the Outlands? Or mm -hmm. are they? Oh, apparently they are. So, yeah. I mean, that's the yeah. weird thing is sigil. You can see sigil hovering above the spire, but you can't mm -hmm. get to it. You can't possibly fly to it or reach it. So it's almost artificially shown there and depicted there but it isn't yeah. truly there or it isn't accessible so yeah but for sure there are gods in these lands and that's one of the other interesting things about this book which i think it, it has to do due to size because the outlines is you know pages 
61 to 96. And in those 35 pages, they have to cover a lot. And so you basically get, um, you know, a two page spread for each gate town. Mm -hmm. And then you have a very quick session of other stuff, as we'll talk about. And the other stuff is, is the reality is that if you look, think of it as a, a, and there's a simple map in one place and then a detailed map included in your book, which I have no idea how to easily find it on D&D Beyond. I was, it kind of drove me mad and then I just gave up. I'm sure it's somewhere there, but I could not find how to get the fold out map easily. Yep. Anyway, but, um, but the idea of you imagine a pizza and in the center, instead of the little plastic table that keeps the bottom sticking is the spire and sigil hovering above it. And on the outer edges of the pizza are the gate towns. Imagine like where the slices come together. And those are uh, the gate towns. But then there's all, and, and around them is sort of an area that reflects the gate town. But eventually that dies down and melds into what are the other areas are. But, but in the spaces in between, all sorts of stuff is there. And we just get a few windows into the stuff. And mm -hmm. as usual with this kind of Planescape thing, the idea is, well, the DM can decide how big this is and and what what leads to where we're not telling you mm -hmm. uh yeah l l the last little bit before we get to the gate towns is there are no suns moons or stars but we have 12 hour cycles of day and night called peak and anti-peak and then the directions are based on whether you're moving toward the spire or away from the spire toward the spire is spireward and away from the spire is brinkward uh, and the poster map where talked about again, where it says the map is what it is, things change, uh, we, we can't be too detailed. And there's a common saying, apparently, uh, which is it takes as long as it takes when talking about how long it takes to get from one place to another, uh, which is exactly what the DM will probably be saying uh, or thinking as they create their adventures in this area. So let's I, talk about the gate towns. I did just find the poster map, Sean. Uh, there is yeah. a poster map section in the book, uh, and that's where it links. In, in, in uh, so beginning of chapter three is where you'll find it, um, and it is gorgeous. It's beautiful. It looks like something uh, kind of like you'd find at the Vatican on a wall or something like that. Right. It really is great. I love the style of it, um, yeah. and and definitely a lot there for the DM to be creative with. Yep. So. Let's talk about the gate towns. There are 16 of them, one for each outer plane. We are given them alphabetically, starting with Automata, which is the gate town leading to the clockwork nirvana of Mechanus. Um, who are the primary citizens? Modrons. Uh, Modrons are the inhabitants of Mechanus and of this gate town as well. Uh, what are we looking at for the flavor of this gate town, Teos? Yeah, each of these has a strong sort of presence. And here the idea is clocks and annoyingly lawful. That's Those are the, the fate traits I would assign. Uh, everything runs on time to a particular rhythm and it's lawful annoying. You know, if you thought, if you, the way you might, you might stereotypically think of a paladin, um, there is a rhythm to the place. So anything that is rhythmic, like a bird chirping, a hammer hitting the anvil, ends up matching the ticking of the gear that revolves around the gate to uh, Mechanus. And, and so that's kind of a fun thing um, and probably really annoying to chaotic characters. Uh, 
but then there's also this strange lawful evil underground known as the inverse and they kind of underground somehow nobody knows they're there like it makes it clear that people don't know that they're there and they like make a mockery of all the laws but are lawful uh, that part was weird for me yeah a little bit up next we have bedlam which is the gate to pandemonium its citizens are primarily humanoids such as runaways and outlaws eking out a miserable existence the gate the gate itself comes out of an obsidian tower called sable reach where winds tear uh, at the town and cause a constant decay deafening anyone within 1000 feet of the tower and they the wind causes a psychic spite in people and can even dominate people to commit evil acts yeah and and this is like what you were talking about where, where it's like if you arrive in bedlam and you're a, a good character you might want to help people but there's no real helping them um i think there is that sense that an endless number of runaways and outlaws will find their way here and will be miserable because that's just how it is and you can't really do anything because this evil presence is just coming out literally blasting out both psychically and physically out of the gate and it's just going to be this way so yeah, and, and there are some adventure places, like there's the Iron Dagger, a tavern, tavern that uh, has silence cast within, but like completely silent. So then it's rife with crime because people can sneak up on you. And, and then there's the Wailing Hollows, tunnels worn by the winds where miners search for this black ore that fumes with malice. And, and it's just, yeah, there's a sense of like, well, I, I guess these are places to visit, but you got to keep going because you can't really accomplish anything here. And keep going to where? Because if I come to Bedlam, like we were saying before, do I really want to go to Pandemonium where it's going to be even worse? Like, boy, I better have one heck of an adventure reason to do that because I'm an even automata. If, if I'm a chaotic character and I'm there, I might want to change things, but I can't really. Right. I think we're, we're going to see, we've just seen and we are going to continue to see sort of what is the reason for us to be here? And you can give an outside reason, but it's just a get in, get out, and really don't associate with this. What what I would do if I was going to run the kind of campaign that I want to is to give each of these place, as you've been saying, it's sort of a little too much. Mm-hmm. I would try to tone down the weirdness and make each one more of a normal city more of a normal area where something important is done something important is made the people have a reason for staying there uh because if if i ended up in bedlam and it was horrible i would just walk away yeah and they they don't seem to give a reason why people stay uh, in any of these places that are horrible. When you just over there, kind of horrible. Yeah, well, they're all horrible in their own way. Yeah, <laughs> um, and and maybe that's the point, right? But I would try to make them less horrible mm-hmm. and give the people, you know, in some of the places they're they're trying to revolt or they're trying mm-hmm. to 
you know, there's always that counterculture, whether it's an evil place with good uh, people trying to overthrow a tyrant or a good place with an evil seedy underbelly. Um, that's also sort of noble in its own right, in some cases, trying to do something better than what what it's seeing. But it's it's just this mishmash right mm-hmm. now. And I don't feel like you just walk into the city and exist for any amount of time. It's a little overwhelming. Yeah. For Maybe it should be, but I don't think it fits into campaigns well that way. Yeah, and, and I think that you know, it goes back to that question we had earlier in, in our listener question segment where it was, you know, are we being unfair as critics? You know, what, what, how should it serve the DM and the players and so on? And, and maybe if this were totally toned down, we'd say, well, what's the point? This is too obvious. Isn't this supposed to be like a rich, planar experience? But it, it's hard, right? It's hard to, to do mm-hmm. this. What it does, I think it does it exceedingly well. Like the, the words are great. The visuals mm-hmm. are clear, like in just two pages. I mean, if you think of the task of writing, it, you know, you must cover the gate town in just these two pages. Like that is hard, right? And mm-hmm. really good work is done here. And it's just the whole, what do you want out of this as a DM and as a play experience? And it might really vary. But I tend to agree with you that personally for me, I, if I think of it, if I hate this place, like if I am anti-chaotic type stuff or anti-evil, then not having any real agency ground here is sort of difficult to enjoy. And at the same time, if I love this thing, the fact that it's shown to be so bad like let's talk about um you know there's cursed the tartarian depths of carcery which is all like a prison town and mm-hmm. you know like it's just like i don't even know kind of why you're like you're saying like why don't you leave it's so bad here and and here they say you actually can't leave they they keep you right. from from exiting so at least there's a reason you, you know no one wants to leave, let you leave um and then at the same time there's the gate in the center of town no one's apparently ever come out of it because in the prison plane of carcery i guess you never escape into this gate town so maybe right. it's even just a one-way gate um and like sort of what do you really do with that as a dm or ecstasy which is tied to elysium and and when we think about elysium classically through D, the idea is that this should be like a wonderful place right and this the streets are filled with gardenals and humanoids it's serene rolling hills it's a pastoral gate town but there is a pacifying aura that comes out within 300 feet of the gate and suppresses negativity. And it basically is like a Star Trek episode where everybody looks happy, but actually internally, it, it says, quote, walking powder kegs of bitterness, bottling their feelings until they erupt in unbridled incidents. And that's great in the sort of Star Trek way. But also like, man, if I'm like, if my God is in Elysium, I would be like, why, why is this? the case like i don't like this and i'm supposed to like this this is supposed to be the promised land or the gateway to the promised land you know it's it's maybe a little too heavy in that way yeah yeah and like i said if you give if you tone it down just a scooch and you give people a reason to come into or out of this place and give give the people a task to work toward mm-hmm then the characters can come in and either help in that task or disrupt the task in in addition to meeting their own goals for the story. It just, 
Yeah. But oh, hanging over all of this is this idea of neutrality. So it doesn't matter what you do, right? <laughs> if you make it, you know, yeah. too, too much, then it goes away. If you make it too little, then somewhere else, something changes to balance it out. It's just, it's, it's hard to wrap my mind around. Yeah. And, and I mean, and the product, because the D and D is not a movie, it's a pro <laughs> usually not a movie. Uh, it, it's a product for DMs. I feel like the DMs deserve the explanation, right? And so like if this were the Matrix, the role-playing game, you'd want to explain to the DM why periodically the world resets and is rebooted and break that mm -hmm. down to people. And I think in that same way, why these things sort of reset and and the balances, you know, and what to do with it, how to, how to work with that, I think could use, would be of value to understand how to do it. Um, or if the idea is, look, man, this just doesn't work. Uh, it's it, it 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 is for you to just drop in and move in and out and and keep them going because, yeah, you know. Um, one thing that's neat, Sean, the the gate town of Fawnell, uh, mm -hmm. which leads to the Beastlands, is pretty cool because of what it does compared to other places. Where this one is an example of what happens when the gate town gets pulled in through the gate and you start over? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I love this idea of the citizens being these awakened beasts and there's always, it's just a massive hunt constantly hunt or be hunted. Um, now that I can get into, right. That, yeah. that makes sense to me in terms of an adventure where you have to go in and, and rescue someone and you get the idea of what's of what's happening and there uh, are three factions that are guiding packs of huge packs of beasts mm -hmm. and no leader has yet been chosen to lead new fanel since old fanel broke down and you have a nolfang of yinogu who heads up the vile hunt hunting beasts and this actually has action right and and and, and then there's this great visual of a stone colossus named Wrath who sits by the pool to the Beastlands and asks you what your intent is, right? And, you know, are you gonna, going beyond a hunt? Because that's not okay. And th th this one really, like, I was like, oh, yeah, here I can see what I would do with this, right? Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and there's agency it's, to be had. Although yeah, and, and fortitude, <laughs> for me, fortitude, the next one is similar. It's the gate to the peace, peaceable kingdoms of Arcadia, home to celestials and humanoids where everything is about symmetry and beauty. And the quote is a pressure chamber of homogenous moral rectitude, which I love. And, you know, that's something, again, you, you could go into, you need to get information from someone who breaks this beauty and they're being punished for doing so. And you could sort of, you have to work your way through the society in order to find out where this person is. And, and, you know, that's the goal that you can, see yourself in mm. and you don't have to change everything but you have to sort of weave your way through to to uh to get to your goal and and we should say that every uh every section every gate town has a like tiny block of um encounters mm. like a little table like like fortitude yep. has d4 adventure hooks but they yep. tend to be things like a local politician, Dwarf Noble, pays the characters to dig up dirt on an opponent that are, you know, fine little side trekky things, but they're seldom really like a good meaty 
thing that I can do here. And, and, and I would, I would have liked that, like what you're talking about, that it would be a little more how to, how, things like how to operate the gate, like what it usually takes to, to get access to the gate and what does it take to make it here and, and how to create an experience out of this. I would have liked two paragraphs rather than these tables. Yeah. What I'm hoping in the long run is when we get to the adventure at the end of this, the adventure will be a good blueprint for how to run a campaign and use all of this content to its utmost potential. Um, and we'll see. We'll see if that happens. Uh, to quickly run down through some of the other gate towns, we have Glorium, the gate to the heroic domains of Isgard, uh, where giants and humanoids fight to seek glory. Uh, Hopeless, the gate to Hades, with undead demons and oozes burbling forth from the gate, citizens being humanoids and beholders. Uh, the enigmatic High Cardinal Thingal is the ruler backed by these beholders. Um, and in Hopeless, Misery does not really love company, but Misery does love the color gray. Uh, so if you go back to Greek myth, you know, in Hades, that's what it, you know, it's not, it's not a hell in the sense of, you're burning in you know, hellfire. It's you're just there. You just barely exist. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the the feel there. Uh, Plague Mort, the gate to the abyss, where the citizens are demons and humanoids, and everyone is just like in the abyss, working to knock off the person in front of them so they can become the leader. No one should ever be trusted, and it's just mass chaos and death. And any other uh, any other ones catch your eye? I mean, there are so many. Um, uh, yeah, I think I've mentioned the ones that were my favorites, but we've got what like Ribcage, Rigus, Sylvania, um, the 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 Sylvania with the nonstop party. It reminds me of the the yeah. there's that great picture of like a satyr and other fae kind of partying that came out in the Theros Guide, and I imagine that just could yep. go right here. Um, uh but but it's also has this like vampire angle too right there, there is a vampire yeah uh one of the encounters is a you know a vampire hires you to pick their next mate yeah because so like everyone comes together and it's a party but there's also some really nasty things happening in the background if mm -hmm. you're not careful so yeah i have to but the, but you just want a party so you have to sort of fight off those urges in order not to be completely uh, surprised when something bad happens to you. The art throughout all of it is just, I mean, incredible. Like all of the, like, like this is Torch that leads to Gehenna. I mean, just mm -hmm. incredible art that, that really, every single gate town gets art showing what it's like. Um, uh, the... Chaos, Zeos uh, is really neat. That leads to Limbo yeah. as well. And there's this great art of three mode runs that are preparing to like try to go through the game. Really neat. Yeah. And then we get to this sort of other section, right, Sean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the other section is outside of the gate towns are all manner of other interesting places and features like walking castles, layers of timeless evils, godly realms. And so places where you, if you're not in a gate town, can go explore, can have encounters, can set your stories, uh, and so on. 
but I mean, the list is very long in there. Like we said before, with uh, with the the wards, some really really cool places here. Um, so you know, you might have to build a story to go with them, but the grist is there for your storytelling mill if you uh, want to take the time to to mill it. Yeah, I'll quickly mention a couple that caught my eye. Uh, Dendratus, a vertical city of towers and bridges across a fissure. And this is a sacred site for creatures known as Romani, which are detailed in the monster book. And this lattice of towers and bridges covers a massive body. And no outsider knows what that body is. Like, what is this thing that's there, right? That's neat. Um, the hidden realm where Anam, the old father, came after leaving his giant children. So if you know Storm King's Thunder and the story there, you know, that's, you know, he's here. Or Ubtau, if you've played uh, the, the, the Cholt adventure and you know how Ubtau has sort of like stepped back from uh, life in Cholt while also still guarding against Dendar the Night Serpent. Well, he's here in the labyrinth of life, dwelling as a T-Rex, you know, storming through this jungle labyrinth. There's, there's just great, I mean, what a playground of ideas this is. Um, you just have to figure out how to make use of it. And, and you know, any one of these concepts we're talking about is just a paragraph uh, or, or mm-hmm. you know, or so. Um, yeah, a paragraph yeah. or two for each one of them, right? And then you get like three pages of this stuff. So it's, it's very dense, uh, great, awesome ideas. But, you know, the, the lifting is, is for you. <laughs> there you go. So we've been to Sigil. We have seen the Outlands. Now we are ready to move away from the first book and into the others. The next book is a monster book. So we will delve into that. We don't know how deep we're going to delve into them because monster books are a series of monsters. Sometimes... Rather than going through monsters one by one, we may skim it, and we may move directly into the next or the adventure that is sent along with this content. I think it's called Turn of Fortune's Wheel. So we will uh, see what we talk about next time, but it will likely be back here covering Planescape. Any words of wisdom before we take off, Teos? No, I mean I will say you know we 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 critique what we see here, but overall. I'm I am impressed by this book, like this part of the product mm-hmm. for sure. I'd give it high ratings. Like I think there's a lot of neat stuff here. Do I wish it maybe was a little different or did things differently? Sure, but I can't fault the words and and it's all very high quality creation. Um, and and yeah, I mean neat. It's it's nice to have this in yeah. in, in my on my shelf. I I want this kind of product on my shelf. For sure. When in in our previous section, when we talked about news and uh, our listener emails, we talked about setting a goal and did you meet the goal? A lot of what we talk about is things we wish would have been the goal, uh, but that doesn't take away from the fact that this book set a goal of describing this area in a way that gives game masters and players some fun. Uh, encounters or some fun playgrounds to play in. Uh, and it does that extremely, extremely well. You know, and with the next two books, we'll see. Yeah. We'll see. Uh, yeah. I want to add that it, setting wise, if I look at this book and compare it to Dragonlance or Spelljammer, this does a better job of answering the critique that has been given of those books saying, hey, I can't really run a Dragonlance campaign, or you didn't really showcase what a Dragonlance campaign looks like. 
or hey you, you gave me some spelljammer stuff but like what i really want to know is how i populate a solar system and how i do ship battles and how how do i really make this setting sing and while i could put more in this book for sure um i would love for it to be twice the size um it is better at doing that than i think other 5e things that have aimed to be a setting with the exception of van richten's um and Ebron, you know, and Theros, books like that, that I think have done a really good job of that. But but it's been some time since those books. I think a lot of recent books have not done yeah. a great job of that. And so it's nice to see it crank a little more, maybe turn a little more towards that kind of product that does a little better utility towards what a DM wants out of it. Mm -hmm. So there you go. Teos has the final word on that, but I have the final word on saying thank you. Thank you to our listeners out there. Thank you to our Master of Dungeons Patreon supporters. We do appreciate everything that you do for us. A special shout out in our show notes goes to our Master of Realms patrons. You are a bunch of wonderful folks here, and I'm looking at your names in our show notes. And to our Masters of the Multiverse patrons, well, you get the special shout out. Graham Ward, James Walton, Joe Tyler, David Somerville from Prismanx.com, Krishna Simonse, Andy Shockney, Ross Sandberg, Chance Russo at Drago Russo, Vladimir Prenner from Croatia, Robert Paisley, Host Fiction RPG Audio, Falcon Neal, Sean Molly, The Micro Ant, Eric Mengi, The Mathemagician, Chad Lynch, Jim Klingler, a.k.a. DM Prime Mover, Brian King, Chad Jackson, Sean Hurst, Paige Lightman and Ben Heisler, The Mighty Jerd, Nathan Fuller, Andy Edmonds at Nerdronomicon, Seth Eckel, Darren Chandler, DM Chad, Evil John, Merrick Blackman, Steve Bissonette, Craig Bailey, and Keith Ammon of The Monsters Know What They're Doing. Thank you all so much for your support. You, yes, you can become a patron of the show. How do you do that, you may ask? Well, you go to patreon.com slash masteringdnd, and you can give us a little bit of your hard-earned money to help us do this thing that we do. And we really do appreciate those folks that help out. Uh, you can also leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or via whatever means you listen to this podcast, or go to YouTube and subscribe. And that will, uh, you know, help us spread the gospel of D&D &D and of Mastering Dungeons. Teos, where can people find you and what have you been up to lately? Find me at alphastream.org. Uh, I am celebrating the Forge of Foes being out. Uh, if you don't have it, would love for you to get a copy. Um, and uh, I've been releasing Neverwinter videos. And then I'm preparing for my next success in RPGs. What are you up to, Sean? I am up to 10,000 things I can't talk about, but <laughs> I am on the social medias at Sean Merwin. So if I do drop any hints about what I'm working on, you can find them there. Mastering D&D &D is also on many of the social media platforms like Twitter and Mastodon and Blue Sky. Um, you can join us via Patreon, of course, and you can leave any comments on our YouTube channel, Mastering Dungeons. So, Teos, we have survived our trip through the Outlands. We've gone through all of the gate towns and come out relatively unscathed. What are we going to do now? I'm going to roll up a new character called Obvious, and I'm going to go to each of these gate towns and just like, like go to Bedlam, the super windy place, and be like, Woo! Windy day today, isn't it? Oh, my gosh! 
You know, it's really blustery. It just like really just be a pain in the butt about that. I'm going to be your sidekick and just roll my eyes the entire time. <laughs> Perfect. 